This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we are going to chat about weathering storms, both meteorological and personal. And we're going to revisit a conversation we had a few months back with our friend and hero, climate scientist Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, about extreme weather and climate change. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Hi, Marianne. Hi, listeners. It is so good to be back talking to you. Marianne, how are you? How are you weathering these crazy storms of late? Well, I think probably on the same page as all of our listeners that these are some intense and very challenging times, but I am so glad to hear your voice and know that you are okay. You have got a lot going on. (laughs) I have had a pretty intense and crazy few weeks. That is true. And I had this incredible opportunity this morning to, I was a guest on a podcast, which was super fun to be on the other side of the microphone. But my friend Carlos Rodriguez has this awesome podcast called um, Drop the Stones. And we talked about climate change and spirituality and some of my kind of story. So definitely encourage y'all to check out his podcast. And also welcome to any new listeners who found this podcast through, through Carlos. Well, in addition to um, being a podcast guest, you are also, I don't know if you're directly in the path of Hurricane Irma, which is bearing down on the United States as we speak, but you're definitely in the vicinity. So are you safe? What's, What's going on with you and your family? Yeah, so it's been a really stressful few days. Um, we it did look like we were going to be pot- potentially in the path, and you know, my grandfather is my neighbor. He lives two doors down. He's disabled, so we cannot get stuck in loads of traffic and have to be really thoughtful about evacuating him because of his health problems. So we spent the last two days um, when it did look like there was a possibility that we were going to hit get hit by Irma, making all these preparations, buying plywood, buying water, trying to come you know come up with a good plan for how we would safely evacuate him. But thankfully, it it does look like Irma is going to spare us this time around, which I'm personally very grateful for. Although now it looks like it's, of course, headed straight into Florida and potentially Charleston, the coast of North Carolina, which is where um, my my sister lives. And we have a, a beach house on the coast of North Carolina. So I am I'm worried for other members of my family at the moment. But thankfully, it looks like we are going to be safe dear, down here in, in South Alabama. And now we have a rock solid hurricane plan, which I encourage anyone who lives on the coast to have. <laughs> wow. And uh, and of course, our thoughts and our prayers go out to everyone who is not so lucky and is either recovering from Harvey or facing down the possibility of, of Irma, which by the time this podcast airs, probably we will will know the the end of that uh story of the path of that storm, but it's been really terrifying, I think, to to see these storms, to see them coming at our country within a week of each other, uh, and to know, as you and I know, that warmer water is contributing uh, and a warmer climate is contributing to the severity of these storms. Um, and, you know, some people are saying this is not the time to talk about it, but I think you and I both uh, both feel this is that time when we have to talk about it, of course, with with 
all the love and compassion in the world. Because if we can't learn these lessons now, uh, when are we going to learn them? So that's, uh, I just, I yeah. am, uh, I, I'm just sending you and everyone on, on all the coasts, all of my love. I know. I'm just so um, scared and, and heartbroken for the people in the storm's past. They're saying it's the uh, most, the strongest hurricane that's ever come out of the Atlantic on par with Andrew, which is just, you know, it, it clearly speaks to the fact that things are changing. And it is like living on the coast. And I've been through plenty of hurricanes because we split, you know, we spent the summers down here in Alabama. We have a house on the coast in North Carolina. But I just having these two really strong, ferocious storms back to back, you know, it was a terror. It felt terrorizing, you know, like I personally felt terrorized <laughs> and I can't imagine, you know, just and, and I'm just one of millions of people who are currently feeling that way. And it really it's so it just drove home how real this is. And of course, you know, the Harvey and Irma are, are two horrible tragedies that we are facing right now. And people lost their lives and and you know, God willing, hopefully will not lose their lives to Irma, but it's certainly a possibility. But then, of course, you have the West on fire. It literally looks like Mordor and there's ash raining down on Seattle. And it just feels like right now, everywhere you look, you know, it's it's clear signs of, of the fact that climate has changed. And it's really, really scary to be living through it. And that's just in the U.S. Yeah. And Bangladesh, India, Nepal have had horrible flooding. Um, you know, I, li- I lived in Missoula for four years, Missoula, Montana. I went to graduate school there and I saw some pictures recently of the fires and I lived through some fires out West and it was very apocalyptic and very scary, but oh my goodness, like it was so scary. Just look like really like, like uh, a volcano. It looked like a volcano outside of, of Missoula. Um, and you know, I have a sister out in Tacoma, Washington, and she said ash is just falling down from the sky on them. They live on the Puget Sound on the water. So, whoo! Oh, I. So let me just tell you, I um, I want to shift over to another storm you have been weathering, Anna Jane, because I was <laughs> sitting on my couch last night and I was thinking about all this, and I just really like personally, I started to get super overwhelmed, and I bet a lot of our listeners are feeling that way. You know, Harvey and Irma and and these fires that it, it's, um, it's, it's kind of scary and, uh, and it makes you want to do something and it makes you want to do nothing. And, uh, and you in the meantime have been wading into how, uh, polarizing these times are. And, um, you put out a video on Facebook that I think the surprise, uh, the response to it surprised even you in response to some things that your dad said about Obama and Charlottesville and uh, it's sort of uh, racism in America. And, and you put out this very, I just encourage folks to listen to it, just such a touching and moving response and an apology. And you must, I know you were shocked by the response because it basically went viral. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So the the background is that my, you know, my dad has made some pretty troubling troubling statements about uh racism and white supremacy, you know, over the past couple of weeks since Charlottesville. And, and we should say you know, your dad course- is a prominent evangelical pastor for those who are not aware. Yep, so he has quite a large following and um, so, you know, I, I run into this with climate change all the time. He says crazy things about climate change and I've kind of, I think maybe I'm just used to it. And also I can kind of understand why people are confused about climate change. Like I know a lot of, you know, how much money goes into pain, you know, misinformation campaigns around climate change and it's a complicated issue. 
Um, but racism for me, for a Christian leader, is just kind of a, a 101 issue. <laughs> like, that should be a, a pretty black and white subject. And he basically made the statement that, that, that you know, white supremacy wouldn't exist were it not for President Obama. And I just, you know, I, I, I know how hurtful that is because I hear from people who are people of color who are raised in his church or have come across his work or ministry. You know, I've, I've heard firsthand just how um, bewildering and confusing and hurtful it is to be a person of color and, and have these evangelical, white evangelical leaders who are just really not speaking to the issues that concern them and that even threaten them and in many cases are making it worse. And so I wasn't sure what to do because, you know, I pester my dad with text and I troll his Facebook sometimes, but it just felt like this required something more. And my husband um, was just like, well, why don't you make a video? Because my dad makes all of his he does Rick's rants. So he has like these little Facebook videos that go out every day. So I was like, okay, I will. And so I just put on a little makeup and got my iPhone and just <laughs> tried to speak from the heart and and had no idea that it would generate that kind of response. You know, what was really amazing too, I mean, it has almost 90,000 views at this point and just really, I mean, beautiful, overwhelming responses. M- many from young Christians who were raised, like myself, who were raised in the church and feel kind of spiritually homeless, but so many from Black Christians who have just felt really... Um, you know, heartbroken and, and afraid because of the way that white evangelical leaders are are dealing with the kind of Trump era and all of the the racial divisions within it. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever gone through. And, you know, it was just this little video. I just feel like it was such a small thing, but it clearly just touched so many people to hear someone who was raised in the church say, I'm sorry that I think this is wrong and that I want, uh, you know, I stand with you. It was a clear reminder that our voices really do matter. You know, like we, those, those little things that we don't think matter can matter a lot to people. Well, and I think right now the way in which you lifted this up was just so heartfelt. I think that that was part of why, why it resonated with so many people because it was just so personal and emotional, but what have you, as all this stuff sort of, I mean, it does feel like a storm. It feels like weather storms and political storms and personal storms. And how, how does that feel to you, but that all this is kind of coming, coming together at once. Um, it's overwhelming for sure, but it, it definitely, you know, feels like we have an important message, you know, both on climate change and on these other issues. And that there is a gap in moral leadership, as far as I can tell, that a lot of people feel. And so any small way that we can stand up and, and use our voices in, in compassionate and heartfelt ways, whether or not, you know, I don't have a huge platform, but even, you know, five people makes a big difference. And, you know, it's hard going up against my dad has always been hard. I love my dad. Um, he is, he's been very supportive and generous towards me and my siblings. And, you know, he's my family. But I do think that that we have to stand up and, you know, he didn't raise me to stay silent on things that I care about. I don't think it would be honoring to him if I did. And he may not see that now, but hopefully he'll see that one day. Well, and let me, um, let me say a word about speaking up as it relates to the interview we have coming up in these, again, these big storms that are bearing down on our country. There was a uh, article, I think last, in recent days where a reporter asked the EPA about the connections between Harvey and climate change. The EPA spokesperson said something to the effects of, look, we're, we are, uh, we're not going to politicize this issue right now. 
And so the headline was basically EPA is accusing climate scientists of politicizing uh, this, this storm. And to me, that is, there are forces out there that would have us not speak up and say, oh, this isn't the time. This isn't the time to talk about climate change. Uh, and, it, and it turns out, you know, if, if they have their way, it's never the time. And you, I think, walk the walk of, of entering a touchy conversation with so much love and compassion and humility, which is the way, you know, we, I think you and I both want to approach all these delicate subjects. But in our interview with Catherine Hayhoe, we talk about that, about, you know, people want to just dismiss these storms as weather and not climate. And yet we know that there's a connection and how can we talk about that? And we also talk with her as an evangelical leader about why these issues are so polarizing and why it has become so difficult to talk about them. So just uh, uh, another quick note, unfortunately, I I have a a new post out about this. Scott Pruitt, uh, under his leadership, unfortunately, the EPA is not appear to really be on the job and helping people recover from these storms and and taking care of all these toxic sites as much as they should be, at least according to the Associated Press. And, and, you know, they're focused more on uh, on arguing with reporters as far as we can see than, you know, as much as doing all the work that is, that they could be doing on the ground. And so, so check out that post. And if you want to help folks uh, in the path of the storm, I just want to flag the Sierra Club. Uh, all money that the Sierra Club is raising towards Harvey is going directly to frontline community groups on the ground. We're not keeping it for the Sierra Club. We're working with people in the area to make sure that goes where it's most needed if you're looking for a way to help. Um, so uh, so I think, Anna Jane, that uh, with all of this weighing so much on people's minds, I think it's a great time now to listen back to this interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. So the last time the three of us were together, we were in a gorgeous little cafe in Paris drinking wine. (laughs) I wish we were there again um, right now. Um, But it's so good to be connecting with both of you, two of the most badass, brilliant women I know working on this issue and just lovely humans and friends. So thank you for being here with us, Catherine. And I'm just I'm it's been a crazy year. That was a little over a year ago. How are you doing? How How are you holding up in these crazy days? Yes. Well, sitting at a cafe in Paris with a glass of wine makes everything look better. And <laughs> these days we probably all feel like we would like to be doing that on a regular basis. Well, yes. When you look around the world, the number one question I get these days is how do you keep your hope up? How do you have a positive perspective on what's happening in the world today? Not just with climate change, but with many things with, um, with science and with other issues. And this is a, an issue that being human. I struggle with myself too. And of course, the number one thing that I have found is whatever information we focus on, that's what goes into our head and that's what shapes our attitudes and perspectives. So if anything, over the last few months, one of the biggest changes that I have made is I go out of my way to deliberately look for good, positive news, whether it's exciting things that are happening at the local scale with clean energy, whether it's the fact that the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the U.S. Congress now has 34 members, half of them Republican, um, whether it's the fact that there's Republican leaders calling for a carbon tax, or whether it's just the fact that I was at church yesterday and this woman, I don't even know, came up to me as we were all walking out and she said, you know, I just found your Facebook page and it's great. And I wanted to tell you, hang in there. I know times are tough, but it's going to get better. 
Well, thank you so much for saying that because I, uh, it's hard to be a messenger of hope these days, but I think we need it more than ever. I just was uh, at a, a meeting earlier with 350 people from the Beyond Coal campaign from all around the country. And we were meeting on the same day that Trump announced all of the climate rollbacks. And that was what I tried to send them off with was, you know, you're a network of people who are replacing coal, our biggest climate polluter with clean energy, go out there. There is a light in the darkness, you know, there is a path forward. Um, and so thank you for being that messenger of hope because we really need it. I'm, uh, I'm curious what your, on your kind of science, uh, science side of your work these days, what are, what are some of the most important things that you think you're discovering that are happening that you think people really need to know this, even despite all the political cacophony coming from Washington. If people just knew these couple of three things we're learning about the science, it would really help uh, maybe break through the partisanship and, and light a fire under everyone. That's a good question. I think that, first of all, if people could recognize that a thermometer isn't Democrat or Republican. I mean, these days, literally the number that a thermometer get, gives you is somehow seen as a partisan issue. If people could understand that we scientists are doing the very best we can to be as impartial as we can with the information that we generate, checking and cross-checking and double-checking and triple-checking. And so when it goes out into the public sphere, that information is something we feel very confident about, that climate is changing, that humans really are responsible. We've been studying it for over 150 years. Uh, the impacts are serious, but there's also solutions. So first of all, I think a basic trust in science is one of the most important things. But then second, related specifically to climate change, the fact that it is not a future issue anymore. It is not about what's happening only to the polar bears or what's going to happen to future generations, but not us. Climate change is already affecting each of us in the places where we live. And if we open our eyes and look around, we can see that evidence ourselves. And then the third thing that I think is more an awareness that is building in the scientific community right now is the fact that we have never pushed our climate system like this before. In fact, as far back as you look in history and paleoclimate records, we have never seen this much carbon dioxide being pushed into the atmosphere this fast ever. And so the potential for surprise for things that we scientists have not yet even conceptualized, or maybe we've thought of, but we don't think it's very likely, the potential for surprise increases the further we push our planet. And so that is why from a purely precautionary conservative perspective, it just makes sense to wean ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible, because we are conducting an unprecedented experiment with our planet. And chances are, odds are, that if anything, our scientific projections are actually too conservative. Well, let me ask one follow-up question, and then Anna Jane may want to talk about the weather because she's been in some crazy weather lately. Um, but on that topic of pushing these thresholds, one of the things I wonder about, again, as an activist who is working day and night to drive down emissions as fast as possible, um, the the idea of tipping points and the idea that this is this is non-linear or it's not just going to march along at a steady pace but whether it's you know the methane the permafrost starts to thaw and that releases lots of methane which further you know starts the cycle of more permafrost melting and more methane and more climate change i mean what it is is it do we know when and where we might hit these tipping points or is it really we're just 
doing our best to project that, but we're entering this world of where things could change very quickly or not. And this is hard to say at this point. No, we don't. I mean, we often look at the targets like the two degree or the one and a half degree target that nations agreed on in, in Paris when we last saw each other um, almost a year and a half ago. We often look at those targets as, oh, well, as long as we're just, you know, 1.999 degrees, we'll be okay. But if we're at, you know, 2.0001 degrees, then everything's going to hell in a handbasket. That isn't the way those targets work. The reality is we don't know, like you just said, we don't know at exactly what point which tipping points might come into play. But we do know for sure that the further we push our planet uh, beyond its past state, the further, the more carbon dioxide we pour into the atmosphere and other heat-trapping gases, the greater the likelihood of these tipping points occurring. So that, again, just because we're uncertain about those doesn't mean they aren't real. And because we're uncertain about those, it makes even more sense to be cautious and conservative. And I use those in the original sense of those words, not in the sense that they are used today. Hey, y'all. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to remind you about the People's Climate March, which is coming up on April 29th. It's going to be such an inspiring, amazing event. Um, You know, the big marches in D.C., but you can also attend any of the sister marches across the country. To RSVP, just text RESIST to 21333. That's 21333. And, you know, it's just, it's so important that we show up right now. It, it really is one of those critical, urgent moments. And we can do it together. And we can't wait to see y'all there. So, again, to RSVP, text RESIST to 21333. All right, back to the show. So I um, am curious, particularly about this connection between weather and climate, because A, I just moved down to Alabama from New York City and um, was here over the winter and we just had insane storms. And like, according to the locals, way more like severe storms and flooding and tornado warnings and watches than they used to have over the winter, that usually that's a spring phenomenon. Um, like today, for example, we had a tornado watch for five hours this morning and I was holed up in fear and anxiety, but luckily I'm totally fine. And I, I feel like I watched the, (laughs) yeah, thankfully, um, I watched the kind of climate change conversation on Twitter pretty closely. And it feels like a lot of people, especially over the past couple of months have been, uh, referencing like just really weird weather. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do we, I know it's related to climate, but how do we, how you know, how do we talk about it and think about it um, in a way that is, you know, honoring to the fact that individual weather events, you know, are different than viewing climate change as a whole? Yes, that is one of the hardest questions because we always want to know when something weird happens. We want to know was that climate change or was it natural? And the answer is actually always somewhere in between those two these days because. We have altered the background and conditions of our atmosphere to such an extent that everything that happens has a little bit of human influence in it. But, you know, one event, the frequency might have doubled because of a changing climate. Another type of event we don't know yet. Another, the frequency might have tripled or even increased by a factor of 10. So to actually look at whether climate is changing the risk of certain events, we have, we have to look over climate timescales. And climate timescales are not one year to the next. They're 20, 30, 50 years. And over those timescales, we do know that extreme heat is getting more frequent. We do know that in many places in the United States, 
heavy downpours are getting more frequent as well. And that just makes sense because in a warmer world, water evaporates quicker. So there's more water vapor sitting up there waiting to be picked up and dumped on us. We also know that sea levels are rising, increasing the risk of coastal flooding. And we know that the strongest hurricanes are getting more frequent. Or another way to put it is hurricanes are getting stronger uh, because they're getting their energy from warm ocean water. Now, for many of us, we say, yeah, but what about tornadoes? What about crazy thunderstorms and hail? What about all this unseasonal weather? We do know that the seasons are shifting too. I mean, where I live here in Texas, we had the winter that wasn't a winter. But because these things like tornadoes and hailstorms happen at such a small spatial scale, we haven't yet been able to definitively connect the dots on whether there's a trend or not. Because before radar, you know, there were less tornadoes, but it's because people reported less tornadoes. So Mm -hmm. we just don't have enough of the data to say for sure if there's a long-term trend. But anecdotally, there's so much information coming in on how things are really looking weird, especially over the last year and a half, because of course, 2016 was the warmest year on record and 2015 was the warmest year on record before that. And 2014 was also the warmest year before that. So uh, all of that warmth affects our weather patterns and is causing some crazy stuff to happen that makes all of us look up and say, wow, there's definitely something different going on. Yeah, it's it's really, I don't know. I think it's, you know, just be, having worked on climate change for like 10 years now, it did used to feel something that was in the future. And now it feels very present. And I am witnessing it in my everyday experience. And that that's a, a weird thing. But I actually want to talk about something other than science, because you are not just an amazing climate scientist. Um, you're also a Christian and a pastor's wife and the daughter of missionaries, uh, which is a background we share in common. And so you also kind of uh, exist in this in this interesting space between faith and spirituality and science and climate change. And I'm just, I'm curious, like how, how is, you know, how, how is that part of your life manifesting these days? You know, how do you see them supporting each other? Um, Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear your take on that. It's a sad commentary on the world we live in these days. I think that those roles are seen as some type of oxymoron as if they couldn't coexist. Yeah. So yeah, so often people are like saying, you're a what? I mean, I get, I have to say, sadly, I probably get a hundred times more people telling me you can't be a real Christian if you're a scientist. than I get people telling me you can't be a real scientist if you're a Christian. Somehow we've arrived at this idea that studying God's creation, whether it's this planet or this galaxy or this universe, studying God's creation is an unchristian thing to do. That is a relatively new idea, because if you look back in history at some of the leading scientists back 100, 200, 300, even 500 years ago, all the way from Newton through Faraday and through Francis Collins today, they are motivated by their faith to understand this world that we live in. I mean, if we believe that a thinking, sentient being designed this incredible universe that we live in, that is the assumption on which science is built, that somehow this universe will make sense and we can use our brains to figure out its logic. I mean, to me, there's really no incompatibility between those ideas, but somehow we live in this world where studying science has become the suspicious activity. And that absolutely breaks my heart. I think it's troubling to a lot of people that we're suddenly in this time where uh, our political leaders are spouting alternative facts and the sort of authority of things that arrived out through the scientific method is suddenly in question when, you know, people fly in airplanes and go to the doctor and 
have computers in their pockets and rely on science, you know, a hundred different ways in a day. Um, as a scientist and a person of faith who, you know, you may have a special insight into the where this doubt of science has come from, uh, where do you think we go from here? Because it's obviously uh, that we it, it can't go on like it is today. It's just an untenable position that we're in with science and doubt. It is. Where has it come from? It's been deliberately sown. So with the upcoming science march, there's a lot of discussion inside the scientific community as well as out. Does this march politicize science? Does it mean that scientists are somehow taking sides on a political issue? And the answer to that is the science has been politicized. That ship has sailed. That donkey is out of the barn. How did it get politicized? It was politicized by politicians. Why? Because they didn't like the implications of the science. And when you look at the science that forms the basis for understanding the climate system and for building the climate models that I work with, that's the same science that we use to design airplanes, nonlinear fluid dynamics. It's the same science we use in our refrigerators every day, radiative transfer. Yet somehow, oh, radiative transfer is acceptable when it's a refrigerator, but it's not acceptable in a climate model. That makes absolutely no sense. Science is science, no matter where you apply it. And again, that's what attracted me to science, the idea that on this little insignificant planet orbiting the sun in the corner of the Milky Way galaxy, we could somehow figure out the laws of the universe that govern what's happening at, on the opposite side of the universe from us. That is the basis of physics, that the laws that we have here are the laws that apply everywhere. And just because you say they don't, doesn't mean they don't. It just means that we are dangerously shutting our eyes. We're burying our heads in the sand to information just because we don't like the implications of it. It's as if we went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have something really unhealthy looking in your lungs. And it's likely a result of the fact that you've been smoking for the past two or three decades. And you turned on the doctor and said, doctor, you're scientifically motivated. You are quoting me information from these peer-reviewed journal articles that are nothing but political tools. You're doing this because you just want to make money and I'm going to go away and ignore everything you said. Well, obviously we would think that person was crazy, but that is the exactly perfect metaphor of what our politicians are doing today. Hmm. It's just, it's stunning. Yes. And <laughs> stunning. That's stunning. a good word. Yes. And I think this is related to, to that question, but not only, you know, are you a very renowned scientist, you've also been called the best communicator on climate change of our generation. And you were recently uh, recognized by Fortune magazine as uh, one of the world's top 100 leaders. Um, and I'm just I'm super interested in how we better communicate about this issue and, you know, through storytelling and just through better you know framing. Um, I would love to hear the in, you know insights that you have on that, especially in light of this kind of new world that we're in where. Um, it's increasingly politicized. Our political, you know, situation is a mess. I don't need to remind all of us of this. Yes. But how do we, how do we communicate better in this in this environment? Because um, that just seems absolutely critical. Yes, an environment where facts are no longer seen as fixed, immutable things. Now, don't get me wrong; they are. But in our communication, if you say, "Well, that's a fact," somebody will say, "Well, I don't agree with it." And it's fascinating because a science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, back in the eighties 
deplored the state of democracy where, as he said, there's this dangerous idea that my opinion equals your fact. And that is exactly the world we live in today. So how do we talk about climate change? I can tell you the number one thing that we don't want to do that does not work, that just deepens the divide between us and leads to even more entrenched positions than before is to haul out all the facts. So someone says, oh, it's just a natural cycle or those scientists aren't sure about it yet. Or I heard it was sunspots causing climate to change or it isn't actually even changing. They told me that the ice in Antarctica was growing. So it was all a false alarm. So whenever anybody says that, our instinct, especially if we know anything about science, is to say, I know that's wrong and I can show you the facts that prove it. But here's the thing, that actually won't change anybody's minds because their real objections are not scientific. Their real objections are the fact that they have been told, we've all been told, that we can't be who we are, whether that's a Christian or a conservative, politically speaking. We can't be who we are and agree that climate is changing, because if we did, that would mean government control, loss of personal liberties, complete destruction of the economy, possible rise of the beast and the Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I have heard that quite a few times. Oh, I, I believe do. it. Yes. Knowing my father, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, there's many people who say that. So, But it's easier to say it isn't real than to say it is real, but I don't support the solutions. And so that's why, as I talk about in our little global weirding videos, we have these little short five-minute videos we did for PBS Digital Studios called Global Weirding. One of my favorite videos is called, If I Just Tell Them the Facts, They'll Change Their Minds, Right? And the answer is wrong, they won't. But what will change minds is talking about solutions, solutions that are palatable, solutions that are attractive or cool, solutions that are good for the economy or local jobs or national security. Solutions will change people's minds. And the social science has showed that as humans, if we feel like we can be part of the solution to a problem, we're much likely to accept the reality of the problem than if we feel like it's this huge thing that we could never fix anyways. You know, I think that that's such a great, um, a, a great thing to keep in mind. Also, going into the science march, as you know, I think mm -hmm. one of the one of the upsides or the uplifting pieces of this whole problem is that we actually have the solutions. You know, we we have solar panels, we have wind turbines, we have energy efficiency, we have got all the tools at hand, and um, and that kind of brings us back to the the top of the interview of keeping your eye on hope. And I wonder, last question for me, and then I'll, I'll let Anna Jane close it out, but as we go into the science march, and you have, you know, one foot in the world of science, one foot in the world of faith, a lot of people see as being incompatible. Uh, what is something that you wish, you know, one side would be saying to the other or being more understanding about from the from the other when it comes to, to climate change, whether it's something climate scientists need to learn from people of faith or something people of faith need to learn from climate scientists or maybe a little of both. Mm. The number one thing would not be to actually say anything to each other, but rather to listen to each other. Mm. Yeah, because so often, yeah, so often we feel like we already know what the other person is going to say. And even if we did know what they were going to say, just understanding why they're saying it can often make us understand where they're coming from. I mean, we're all humans. Uh, when it all comes down to it, at the most fundamental level, we pretty much all want the same thing, which is just to be okay. And so if you can listen beyond the rhetoric to people's fears and their hopes, their anxieties and concerns, and also their loves, then that's how we might be able to find common ground. On that note, I'd love to just uh, hear 
as our last question, like what does kind of keep you like even on more of a personal level, like what is that that spark of hope or love that that keeps you going? And and what advice do you have for our listeners so that they can keep, you know, keep marching forward in that way, too? So one of the biggest things that gives me hope are people. The stories, sometimes the big stories, but even more often the small stories of individual people making a difference in the place where they live. Again, whether it's with clean energy and new technology, whether it's founding you know, a new citizens climate lobby group out in the wilds of West Texas and 30 people show up to a group that you thought you know, there'd be 30 protesters outside and two people inside, um, or just hearing about people who are talking about this issue from a different perspective and sharing from their hearts why they care about it or cities that are taking action to prepare for a changing climate so that the people who live there will be okay, whether they agree that climate is changing or not. So when I hear these stories of people, that is what gives me hope. And for me too, as a Christian, one of the biggest things that gives me hope is the idea that there's a bigger picture here. And we are in the moment, in the present, looking backwards, unable to look forwards. And so rather than being overcome with anxiety and fear, we are actually told, and this is my favorite verse in the Bible, it's not a, you know, it's not one of those verses that we green if you have the green version of the Bible. It's just a verse about our attitudes, and it says, God is not the author of fear. So if I am overwhelmed by fear and by anxiety, that's not coming from God. And that verse goes on to say what we do have from God is a spirit of love, a spirit of power to get things done, the ability to act. And my favorite, a sound mind to make good decisions. And that, when it all comes down to it, is what keeps me going. Oh, that I is totally fantastic. That. <laughs> yes, thank you. I feel like we all needed that. <laughs> yeah, oh. you know, Anna Jane and I both are uh, people of faith ourselves. And I think uh, we uh, draw some, on some of that same inspiration. And you definitely just gave some to mm-hmm. me. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us and thank, thank you for your incredible, incredible work. It, it means the world. Oh, well, thank you for having me and thank you for what you do too. You, you are some of those very people who encourage me when I follow what you're doing. So thank you. Well, it is a shared feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all have a wonderful day. All right. That just about does it for us. Anna, Jane, and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. And we also want to thank our sponsor, the Sierra Club and the great band River Wireless for our theme music. Thanks also again to the amazing Dr. Catherine Hayhoe for the interview. Yes. This episode was produced by the amazing Zach Mack, whose birthday was last week. He's getting a little bit old, but we still love him. So much wiser, I'm sure. So much wiser. So much wiser. Thanks to listening to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, if you can please subscribe to us on iTunes and also leave us a review there and a rating, that is the best thing you can do to help more people find the show. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be posting all episodes and updates about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page at NPLH Podcasts. Be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or if you have any questions or if you want to appear on the show by sending us a recording of a dinner party climate fact, which we'd love for you to do, just tweet at us. Again, we are at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.